Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode eight of Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hilary Allen. Uh, looks like everyone's at home today, except for me. I'm recording from a closet in Arizona. <laughs> you both look like you're in your in your homes. Keely, you're in Portland. Yep. Riding Portland, Oregon. the rain. Yeah, no, no it's actually sunny today. I don't Ooh. know. I don't know how that happened, but I'll take it. Yeah. Now it's just in Arizona last week, Corinne. We missed each other. I know. Ships passing in the night. We'll actually <laughs> plan something at some point where we collide in the same location. So we'd love to, I don't know, I think kick it off with some results because there were some badass performances in the last couple of weeks. I was actually at Havelina, um, where it was insane. It was so, so cool. And we watched Camille Heron have uh, you know, a really, really good race. It was kind of like, will she light the course on fire or will she drop? And what will that look like? And she lit the course on fire and finished fourth overall and ran a 1403. The old course record was held by Devin Yanko in I think like 1450. Mind you, two different courses, but still holy Toledo, <laughs> fourth overall. And she just ran by herself, did her own thing all day. And it was literally so impressive to watch chills the whole time. And she finished with a lightsaber. So yes, to her <laughs> that race. Oh, you have costume, not... Corinne. Oh yeah. So I had a warm weather costume and a cold weather costume. So I had a unicorn onesie that I wore in the morning and in the evening, and then, um, had a tutu and, um, I've got this crop top that is from a climbing movie, um, called pretty strong. And it says sick titties across it. So I was rocking around, like, r- I guess, rocking around, not walking around in a, a very sparkly hat and a sick titties shirt and a tutu and living my best life. But it, it, if you have not been to Havelina yet, Jubilee, the race director from Air Viper for that race is amazing. I watched her park cars. I watched her single-handedly manhandle porta potties. I watched her setting up aid stations all on Friday before the race. And then I watched her change costumes 11 times wow. <laughs> on race day, um, including giving out the awards on Sunday in a Pope costume. Um, really Gosh. cool. Brittany Peterson was second, also in the top 10 overall. And then Tessa Chesser over, like there was a battle for that third spot, which is going to be the golden ticket spot between her and a young up and coming athlete, um, Lottie Brinks. Um, they duked it out into mile mile 80 plus and Tessa came out on top and got that golden ticket. And it was the, like the amount of fire that went into that performance was also very, very cool. So Havelina was amazing there, but there's some other results. Um, I think Keely that you found if you wanted to. to sure. Um, first of all, congrats to Tessa. Cause I feel like she's been wanting a golden ticket for a while now. And so yeah. that's really awesome. She finally got one. So I'll see her at States. That's exciting. Um, but another result that I found was Rio de Lago where the first place woman was third overall. So she crashed the men's podium. Um, her name was Katie Pierre McCaffrey. I had not heard of her before, but seems like another like badass up and comer. I don't know. Do you guys have anything about her? I don't know her, but there was another, um, result that I don't know. This is a couple of weeks ago. Now, um, our, American living in France, um, Hillary Girardi mm. was third in a sky race in Crete. And because she, so she was third overall, first woman, third overall, and they put her on the overall podium as well. So she got to nice. the top tier for the women's podium. <laughs> and then they put her up on the third place 
um, spot for the overall podium, which was really, really cool. And a listener sent a photo of that into me. And I was like, heck yeah, race, like way to like, you know, if you're going to call it the overall results, if they're in the overall, put them up there. So I thought that was very, very cool. That's really cool. I mean, kind of on that note, I got a a message from Rachel Kelly, who's in North Carolina about a race called the Hellbender 100, who is now opening two different entry systems, um, to make it a more equal men's and women's race. And they're even doing, uh, they even incorporated a policy for trans where you can sign up as you identify. Um, and so they're trying to open up spots to 75 men, 75 women. Um, and then, they'll have more open spots to fill out the rest of the race. But yeah, they're trying really hard to make it even playing field. It's a cool race. I've got athletes who have run it multiple times and it's, it's a hilly. It's got, there's a lot of vert in this race as well over in North Carolina. I think it's got something like 40,000 feet of climbing. It's a gnarly spring hundred um, out there, but so, so exciting that they're, they're they're putting a policy in place similar to high lonesome where they're going to say, Hey, these are our men's spots. These are women's spots. Um, You know, let's, let's fill them up and try to keep the race even, which I think is a pretty cool policy to swing, swing the arrow back, um, the other way. Some mm-hmm. totally. Do you guys watch the New York city marathon? It's not really. Oh my running, gosh. That was the coolest thing to awesome. watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved, I loved Molly Seidel. Yeah. I loved the quote oh. you pulled. I watched her give like high fives to friends, like during, like in the middle of the race. Yeah. yeah. Do you, got, do you want you guys want to describe why we love her so much? I mean, I, I think the her obvious. story, her story <laughs> yeah. is so beautiful. I mean, if like Keely, if you want to read the quote, but I mean, so one of the reasons why I love her, I think, I mean, it's just, she's an amazing example of, you know, what happens if you actually listen to your body, what happens if, you know, you kind of take a step back, put your health first, and then you can still do amazing things and compete at the highest level. She's had, I think the most, the, the, the best rookie year of for marathon as a marathon a u.s marathoner ever um so and like to pr at at new york city like at personal best yeah like american record on the course as well american record character gave her a shout out and said i'm no longer the american course record holder at the new york city marathon but i could not be more thrilled to watch molly settle take my time down so so, so cool. Like complete with like a bunch of donuts going in after the race. Like she just embodies, I think what so much of us want to, so many of us want to see in elite athletics where it's like, you can be having fun while being serious about your sport Mm -hmm. and to see that combination come out and to see this, this runner who is happy and healthy and has listened to her body at this point and respected it, like have this breakthrough have like step up in distance and to do so, so well is yeah. really beautiful. And I think Keely, I would love to have you read the quote that you pulled um, totally. about that experience. Yeah. I think this quote is so pertinent to a lot of the things we've been talking about because she's actually like, she decided to take a break when she was in the midst of the eating disorder and realized that it wouldn't let her reach her potential. And so now we know she obviously has, but yeah. So her quote kind of goes as, Four years ago, I could have competed in the Olympics. I could have signed a big sponsorship contract with a shoe company, but as my mental health deteriorated, my physical health went with it. I was sidelined by a string of injuries caused by my disordered eating. As my weight dropped, my bones became weaker and began to break. I needed help. And thanks to friends and family, I was able to see finally how deep I'd gone. So instead of competing in the Olympic trials in the summer of 2016 and signing a pro contract, I entered into a treatment program for my eating disorder. That's how horrible things have become. 
And yeah, chills. that is just so powerful. <sighs> yeah. yeah. And then like, chills. even for something like that, I think it's a testament to how strong she's become because, you know, the Olympics and then recovery time after the Olympics and then the buildup to New York city marathon, that's not that much time. And so, you know, a person who isn't, isn't strong and isn't healthy, wouldn't be able to have that big, that quick of a turnaround and perform that well. Totally. Yeah. And this was four years ago. Right. And so it's like, we took time. She took the time. It wasn't like I got treatment and then expected myself to be running these times six months later. It was like, that was four years ago. And and now she's here. So it's a really good testament to listening to your body and then being patient once you do, because the turnover not going to happen overnight. A huge, important message for anyone who's struggling, right. Who's unsure what their path forward is. I mean, I, I think of Ali Ostrander, right. Who went into treatment kind of right around Olympic trials and, you know, was she going to run when she was, what was she not going to run? Like she's been pretty open about that struggle of like trying to navigate that space. And I, you know, once again, I don't, I cannot imagine how hard it is to be the face of that or to, to have that be your platform, but so much respect and admiration for athletes who are willing to continue to put themselves out there because you know, their DMS are not always positive, right? You know, they're super critical, you know, Amelia Boone's got that going on for sure. Like, Mm -hmm. but I'm so happy that these athletes can be, you know, putting themselves out there so that hopefully it reaches, even if it reaches one person who's struggling, who needs to hear that message like that to me is, is probably worth any negative DM they might be getting. Totally. And I wanted to do a quick kind of just like loop back to the first set of results that we talked about um, and specifically talk about Tessa Chester. I think she had a, like a breakout performance and um, I was following her and I was really, I was really inspired and just, um, I just really liked what she had posted about the, like the race and, and some of the, like, I think some negative feedback that she had gotten specifically with body image and, um, some of like the photos of how she looked after trying so hard and digging so deep. And so I'd encourage others to, um, go back there and, and, uh, and maybe read, read the post. Um, but again, just a big shout out to, to, to Tessa for kind of embracing that and kind of, you know, trying to ch- switch the narrative and and say, look, this is what I can do. And, you know, it's like one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, lo- your body looks different when you run in a hundred miles and trying really hard. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, don't, totally. don't gravity, man. Gravity is a real, <laughs> a real factor. Those, or those dehydration photos, right? yeah, and like electrolytes in the freaking desert. Like, hello. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other piece of news that we really wanted to touch on is the breaking, breaking, the breaking, breaking news um, that I've gotten to spend a lot of time talking about in the past week or so is that the UTMB World Series continues to make updates and announcements about what the heck we're doing over the next couple of years. Um, they first made the big announcement via all their Hoka athletes that Hoka is now the new title sponsor for UTMB, um, which I think we all knew was coming. I don't think that was a surprise to any of us, right? I think that was more than a rumor circulating. It was not a surprise to me. I knew it was coming, but I don't know that that was from official sources. Um, But yeah, so Hoka is now the new title sponsor for UTMB. Um, It had been, I guess, Columbia for a really long time had been the title sponsor. And then, so imagine there are going to be a lot of blue banners out there um, all over the mountains next year for that race. But the big thing too is that they're slowly releasing names of races that will be part of that UTMB series. And they're going to continue to release names of races through the end of the year. 
obviously this is maybe more confusing than it is illuminating. Um, but I'm wondering kind of what your immediate takeaways were from seeing the the posts come out from UTMB World Series as far as like what that meant. What does that mean for our season, for our sport, for elite athletes and for everyone else? That's a lot of questions, Corinne. I have a Just lot take, of thoughts. <laughs> take, take, take a stab at one of them, Hill. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think it, okay. So obviously we don't have the full story. So, you know, what that means. Um, and again, this is more of an issue in, um, um, for 2023 UTMB, right. This is not next year. Um, but I mean, it's something that we have to plan for in advance, right? Something like our 2022 will affect 2023. Um, And so I don't like to make, um, you know, huge leaps and jumps and, you know, in my mind until we have all the pieces to the story. Um, But to me, it seems like it's making it a little bit harder for Americans to be able to kind of get in. And also, um, yeah, the the quality, without unnecessary travel, right? Um, And, um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting to kind of the, some of the races that have made it on the list for, you know, qualifying for specifically like UTMB. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem, uh, compare yeah. it maybe like apples to oranges, I guess, and like comparison for qualifications and stuff like this. Yeah. So they've only released the name of 15 races thus far, two of which are in the U S one being Western States. Ha ha ha. Really hard to get into that one. And hmm. then, um, speaking from experience and having our own Keeley towing the line again this next year. Um, and then a race in Mexico in October, we knew this was going to be an issue. Dylan and I are hypothesizing that this probably has to do with the fact that it's really hard to buy races. And we don't think that UTMB and the Ironman group maybe thought that was going to be an issue, but it's really hard to buy races. And Western States is maybe the only one that's not been bought by Hoka slash UTMB. Um, although Hoka is the title sponsor for Western States, they are remaining their own entity. I have spoken with the board about this directly. It is a collaboration between the two organizations and that they retain all of their own individual like power, essentially, which I think is important. People are like, oh my God, Western States got bought out. No, they're still their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I think they can be a voice of reason with UTMB as far as like how this shapes the season for folks. There will be two more races announced by the end of the year. And we expect those to be Hoka sponsored races within the U S more than likely they will be golden ticket. Hoka sponsored races would be my guess, my inclination. We are still waiting to hear what that looks like, but yes, right now it's like, yeah, there's a lot of unnecessary travel potentially. If you're trying to collect your stones to apply for the lottery for most, for most folks outside of elites. Yeah. I mean, I guess my question is, do we just have to race one and finish one? So to get, so for the general population, so we're thinking 2023 more than 2022, right? Because half the races they've announced don't even take place until after the 2022 UTMB. A lot of them are like September and October races. Um, For elites, the idea will be that there will be 30 World Series races and three Continental Championship races. The World Series races, you will need to be top three um, in the field. The world, the continental championship races, you'll need to be top 10 and that will give you automatic entry into a UTMB race. That being said, they need to correspond with the distance. Um, so it'll need to be a hundred K or a hundred mile to qualify for either. If you do a hundred K, you can do CCC or UTMB. You don't have to do a hundred to get into UTMB is, is the thought there. 
There is a 20K race at the world champion at the cha- world championship at UTMB, a 50K being OCC, 100K being CCC, and a 100 mile race being UTMB. So essentially, you'll need a 50K to qualify for OCC. You'll need a 100K to qualify for CCC and or UTMB or a hundred mile race to qualify for UTMB. So it, it'll be, there's that component for, there's talk of there being kind of the Ironman theme of there being age groups within this as well. So it's possibility that you can qualify by finishing in the top three or top 10 of your age group. I'm not sure how that's going to do deal with elites versus the general population. Mm-hmm. And then for everyone else, just trying to get into the lottery you need to complete a world series event or a continental championship event to take that stone and apply that stone or ticket into the lottery. Yes. If you did more races, you would then so in theory have more stones, get more stones. So it's similar to before almost like for the general population. It's very similar to before. Very different for elites. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Guys, this so, sounds to me, and I, I mean, I know Corinne and Dylan, you recorded an episode about this, so you can kind of go into more detail about all of that if you guys take a listen to that. But um, on the Pillars podcast for Dylan, but um, we this sounds really similar to uh, to a race series that I used to compete in, uh, the Skyrunning World Championships, the Skyrunning World Series. Like they had that kind of designation of distances. Um, so it just seems kind of like an application, an application of that, at least for the, for the elites. Yeah. The biggest thing to note here is that this will, this is taking the place of what was called the ultra trail world tour, which was put on by UTMB. And their goal there was to have control over the global calendar. Turns out that didn't give them control over the global calendar. (laughs) because people could get into UTMB without having to do these other races. This new system gives them much more control over who's coming to the race, the championship race at the end of the season. That being said for elites in particular, your sponsors are still going to be what matters the most, right? Like your sponsor is going to have to put weight in that championship race over something else. And the the likelihood is that that might not always be the case, Mm -hmm. right? They might find value in you doing other races. And so I don't think that this is going to have to control our season, but it's something that we're going to have to consider when it comes to getting into UTMB down the road. We just don't know hundred percent what that looks like quite yet. Yeah. And it's just, I think in my mind, like without knowing a ton more about it and still not knowing what the next U S races are, it just feels like this could be a recipe for disaster for people who are trying to race like Western States or one of the longer qualifiers. And then also turn around and do UTMB, And then also the, you know, U S championship, whatever the heck, like, I just feel like it's very confusing could elicit excess racing, which is not necessary in this sport already. Um, and I don't really love it, but I'll read more into it as they keep releasing more information. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really love it too. Just, and Corinne, you can do this as well. I really think that Western States and UTMB are the most compatible races to do, especially if you decided to do like from a training standpoint. Um, you know, if you especially decided to take the longer route, um, and these are iconic races, right? You know, a yeah. hundred mile special specialists want to do these two races. So right. I think it's, uh, but they don't, but they don't translate well, right? Like, I we don't think so. We <laughs> see one person do it. Killian, right. Killian's done it once before these fields were this deep and Francois. like nobody is, but Francois he yeah. didn't win both though. Yeah. So it's just, not it's a hard year. Yeah. No. Not yeah, in the it's, same year. It's very so. hard. And I think with the fields as deep as they are, if you want to be top 10 at Western States, 
and you're really going to the well for it, it's really hard to turn around to UTMB. The years that I've gone to a UTMB race after Western States, um, I think the only reason that I could get away with it to try to be top 10 in both those fields is because Western States was not my priority. Exactly. It was a race that I was in and a race that I was going to run, but I never had to go to the well to be, to be ninth or 10th. Like that was, you know, the reality of, of those races. And so it's possible, but it's not maybe the most ideal situation. And then that that's your season. It's those 200 mile races. And that's, yeah, that could, you know, when I, I had a stomach bug for the 2019 UTMB and that was, it was kind of really disappointing to have like, yeah. my season so hampered and not feel like I had much to show for it because I had 200 mile races as my races. So yeah. could it, could it per like, yeah, could it promote over racing? Yes. Could it promote, encourage unnecessary travel potentially. Yeah. And it's not like we're all made of money either. Like how are we getting to all these races so, or times <laughs> or jet lags? <laughs> but the other, the other thing I did want to mention, um, Emily Hagwood, she did place top 10 in the in Western States mm-hmm. and UTMB this year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, she was the one the person, problem. she was yeah. the only person who was top 10 in both those races this year. And I don't think it was pretty though either. Oh, yeah. Like she, I, she yeah. fought her way into that final group of the top 10. She's so tough at, at UTMB. I think out of yeah. sheer toughness, mm-hmm. yeah. maybe more than yeah. And I think else. that's probably the only way to do those two doubles is to just like, like your point, don't go to the well at Western States. Maybe it's because you don't feel properly during it. You don't get to run your potential, or you choose not to, and then you can gut out UTMB. But they don't complement each other super well. Yeah, and then how do you yeah. get guaranteed entry into exactly. to the other one? So yeah. we don't know a whole lot yet. We know enough to be really confused. I'm sure the the system before was confusing for people with stones and the lottery and itra points and all this kind of stuff, which is now the UTMB index score, blah, blah, blah. It's not straightforward. We're sorry that it, it might've only gotten more confusing, but the truth of the matter is, is that still, this is mostly impacting 2023 and we will have time to figure all this nonsense out in time to help you get into the right races to get into the lottery. Yes, we will. We will get there. Um, but Hilly, you kind of inspired this episode, I think, when we kind of were like, what are we going to talk about? And I say that because you are leaving us for the final race of yours of your season um, on the island of Madeira. And in your words, it's kind of a late season race for you. Like we're pushing into November at this point. And, you know, you'd normally be enjoying a little bit of an off season right now. So how are you feeling about that? You know, it's been feeling a bit weird, especially because, you know, for like having support on, you know, I'm doing some pretty long runs and some longer training. I mean, the reason I was in Arizona last week was because I decided to do the rim to rim to rim. Um, I'd never done it. And so, um, <laughs> uh, actually it turns out November's a perfect time frame for it, but I would have never even, you know, considered, or sorry, October, we're not quite November, but it, I would have never even considered, um, you know, doing that route in November ever, because normally I'm just tapped out after a long season. Um, you know, usually I, you know, as we all do, I mean, we can do a lot of like, you know, the high countries open a lot of big mountain training in the summertime. And that's usually, I spend a lot of time, a lot of hours on the trail and kind of by a shoulder season around this time, I'm ready to take a break. So, um, my year didn't play out that way and I'm feeling motivated, but it's also weird because I feel like, uh, you know, if I have a long run, like who, who's going to go with me, I've just been kind of, it's taken a lot of mental strength to be able to kind of plan these big runs, do them. Um, 
during the week or on the weekends kind of solo, but how I've gotten through it is I have some amazing friends here in Boulder and they like literally would meet me at certain points and give me a Coke and some like candies and push me on the way. So it's like, okay, Hillary, you have to get to at least this point and then, then it's okay. But yeah, it feels a little bit strange. Um, cause I've never been someone who races year round. I like to take a designated off season and we'll talk about kind of what that means. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's kind of why we're, we're talking about this today is that generally speaking, you know, so I come from the, a ski world, right? Like that's my athletic background and skiers have this very specific off season in part because they have a very specific race season. So skiers May 1st is training is when training starts for the year and you train from May 1st through November. And then you race from around Thanksgiving, end of November until early March. And then basically once the race season is done, you know, mid-March or so you take that time off until May 1st. And that is the, the skier off season. That's where people let loose. Maybe they've had a pretty dry season. They've been, you know, quote unquote, well-behaved. Maybe it's kind of like this and that there's a lot of spring birthdays in the ski world for some reason. So it's a good, it's like, it's a very celebrate, like just very celebration heavy time of year. Um, it involves generally like some kind of like pretty strict, straightforward rest. A lot of people are like, we've been in winter, for the last 10 months, we need to go find a tropical vacation for a week or two. And then it's got a bunch of unstructured training, just kind of like, oh, we're gonna go ride bikes or we're gonna go, maybe there's a little bit of skiing left. So we're gonna go ski or we're gonna run something. Like it's very, very low key, very unstructured. And that kind of both physically and mentally is this big reset for the next year, as opposed to trail and ultra running where you don't have that. You could race year round if you wanted to. We don't have like a true, there's no true seasonality to our sport, which is kind of cool, but also I think very dangerous. Um, and Keely, you actually mentioned the other day that for the first time ever, I believe, at least in your, in your trail running career, you are actually taking an off season. And I'm just really curious what that's looked like for you. Yeah. So as I've been thinking about it, I'd say we can emphasize ever to being like ever in all of my athletic careers, if it's not in relation to injury, because playing like basketball, soccer, and other sports in high school and in middle school, I was always on travel teams and teams that weren't part of my school. And so I would basically like go from soccer to basketball to spring soccer to summer basketball. Like, I don't think I've ever had an off season in any of my sports. Um, and it's not, that's not a good thing at all, but I came into trail running and this is also a sport that allowed me to, to participate in it year round. And so I was like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Like I can race year round. Like I can schedule a race every couple of months. Like that'll be fine. I'll take, you know, a couple of days off after every race, like that'll be my off season. And then I'll just keep going. And, and that kind of ended in a catastrophe back in 2018, when I broke my pelvis after seven or eight races, all above 50 miles or above in one season thinking that that wasn't enough and that was normal. And so, yeah, coming back from that, as I've been trying to really embrace training, like really mindfully and, and listening to what, what is good for the body. Um, this year is the first time I've taken like a proper off season because I don't have a race coming up really soon on the docket. And I just got off Sonoma and like right now is kind of really crappy weather in Portland I'm taking organic chemistry. It seems like a good time to just not be, not be running. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm on the end of a second of my second week of no running. And then kind of to Corinne's point, the next plan is like a couple of weeks of just like exercising as I want. So it's not going to be any sort of strict training either. 
So it's been fun. Um, I actually have a really good story about this and then I'll shut up, but I was actually walking on the trail yesterday and I got stopped by someone in Portland that I'd never met before. They recognized me because of my dog. Obviously that is the only way people recognize me. And she was like, so, uh, do professional trail runners just walk in the forest? <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, I'm on an off season right now. Like, this is awesome. I want to walk. <laughs> But like, you can take an off season too. And then they were like, oh yeah, we talk about off seasons. We should take one. And I was just like, yeah, don't give me crap. It's like this myth, (laughs) this mythical off season, like what actually is it? So I think that's why like this, this topic I think is so important to the three of us, um, both as athletes, um, who have had ups and downs in their careers up to this point. And also, you know, all three of us coach as well. And so, you know, we try to instill, these things in our athletes and have them maybe not feel the stress that we have all felt about rest days or rest weeks or off seasons altogether. And we're going to talk about that today too. And so we're going to start micro and work our way macro much to Keely's chagrin. I'm making us go backwards. Um, so we're going to start with rest days because, you know, that is the shortest form of rest that the three of us probably take. And if, I don't know. You guys are like me in the sense, like, have you guys ever hated rest days? Never. Just kidding. I hate them so much. Sometimes it was only like recently that I, um, you know, personally, um, you know, that I kind of changed a relationship with how I, how I viewed rest. Um, and that for me kind of took a different form when I was literally forced to stop moving, moving. Um, and I was forced to embrace rest kind of in a, um, in a more forceful way. Um, there was really no choice in the matter. And then that's kind of shaped. Um, but it took, it took a few years because then when I started to, to run again and move again and train again, I felt like I needed to play catch up. And so then I, I developed this really negative opinion with rest days. I was like, no, I can't afford to, because I've been, you know, I've, I've been on the couch for this amount of time. I've been injured. I've been unable to move. And so I know I would have many long conversations with, you know, Adam, our coach, Corinne, <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to reframe that mindset around individual rest days. Um, and, you know, Adam, he would send me papers and, you know, <laughs> trying to, you know, trying to convince the nerdy Hillary to nerdy, take a day yeah, off. Cause I would, you know, I would need it. And, you know, he would actually really compare me cause he comes from a back, um, a cross-country skiing background and, you know, compare me to, to those athletes and, you know, use that, um, that kind of analogy and timeline that Corinne just explained. Um, and then kind of take these, like his, these skiers, like Martin Fourclaw and like break down his skiing and be like, see, even he like takes rest days, like you need this, you know? So it, it was been, it's been a very long saga for me, but now, um, it used to be this kind of like, I'd get anxious, um, and not, really I've, like I've never seen you panic train before ever. <laughs> no, for sure. No, definitely, definitely not. And then yeah, uh, <laughs> never witnessed you sneaking out for a run because you were stressed and you're supposed yeah. to be resting instead. It's going to make me feel better. Um, yeah. And then, so now I feel like it's a very healthy relationship and actually it was so funny. Corinne, you'd be very proud of me the other week. Cause I have like, we have this, this agreement with, with Adam, you know, I can work really hard, but I have to take rest days every mine looks different. So if I'm in a training cycle, it'd be like 10 days, but no more than two weeks. Um, and like a complete full like rest day. And, um, 
I was like looking at my training schedule and I'm like, Adam, you haven't scheduled me a rest day. I need this. Tell me when, like, tell me when this is happening. And that's like, you know, that's a whole new, a whole new world, whole new Hillary. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so Keely, awesome. Keely, what about you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I used to hate rest days too. I didn't think I knew they were supposed to be part of your training regimen until probably a couple of years ago, but I, I always wondered why I just was like getting stagnant in my running. And I was running with a bunch of girls who had come up through division one running schools. None of them believed in an off day. And so we just kept running and hammering and hammering and hammering. And then I, I got a coach finally, and this was like five years ago now. And he made me take an off day every week. And I did not want to, I revolted like Hillary. I would sneak <laughs> out and, and run and then not tell him, you know, and all these things. And it was like a constant battle for like a year until so healthy. Yeah. It was not healthy at all until I started reading more papers around it and, and, and listening to training of really, really, really successful marathon runners and hearing that they actually do take off days as well. And they run their easy runs easy. And that kind of changed my mindset around off days. Um, and now I take one to kind of to Hillary's point, it's, it's variable based off the training load and the training week, but anywhere between every week to every two weeks, there's at least one. Um, and yeah, I, I love them now. And, and I actually, when I, when I view them as a, a, an off day, I don't even view them as off. I view that as like the most important part of my training possible. So the only goal of that day is to completely recover, completely like fill your body with the most nutritious food and get as much sleep as you can. And like, try to eliminate all negative and like negative associations with running and all the stress from that day as well. And just really focus on recovery and make that like the really hard goal. Yeah. I had to tell myself for years, this goes back to my skiing days that like for training today, I am resting. Like the goal of training today is to rest. Cause to me, it wasn't like if I, if I wasn't training that day, someone else was right. And it was like this constant battle of like putting in the work, putting in the work, putting in the work. And, um, yeah, that like that was a big, I mean, mine led to a phase of, you know, being chronically overreached in a very non-functional way that led to me retiring completely from the sport of skiing and taking a lot of time off off because my body completely broke down. And I think that that is a lesson that I hope that we can prevent other athletes from having to experience because it's not it's not fun. And so as I think both of you mentioned, you know, that might look like having an athlete start with taking a rest day every single week. And then as their body adjusts and adapts and as, the, as they physically, you know, mentally, you know, kind of come on board with this idea, then all of a sudden, yeah, like I, you know, I, I don't think athletes need a complete total rest day every single week. Um, I'll use recovery days, either really short runs or getting on the bike or something a little bit different. Um, but then, yeah, like every 10 to 14 days, um, taking that, that, that day of complete, of complete rest. I'm not, I'm not getting out on my bike. I'm not lifting weights. It's that's not something that you should do on a rest day, all those kinds of things. So I think that that's really important. So what, what else, um, should people know about rest days? You know, is there like, what, what are a perk of a rest day? Um, putting it in your week, putting it in your every other week kind of format. Yeah. So, I mean, again, after shifting that mindset, it was almost kind of like, this is also the same thing that happened to me, like before a taper, like sometimes I would before, you know, a race, like tapering, like doing less, I'd be like, oh my gosh, like what, like what the heck I'd be like anxious. But then as soon as I shifted that perspective, um, like the perks of a rest day is like kind of exactly like Keely said, I mean, we push ourselves so, so much, um, you know, in, in, in running and in training and, 
you know, anyone, whether it's like a new athlete learning to run, um, like long distances and doing, you know, new intensity and new stimulus, like you need time for that body to your body to like absorb all this training. I kind of use this like sponge analogy. You have to like wring the sponge out once in a while, let it sit and dry before you can absorb more water. Um, and so have those rest days are, it's exactly that it's having that time. Um, yeah, both physiologically me, and, and there's and, like a mental, there's a mental for sure. component to it as well. I like yeah. that sponge analogy. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. and also, I mean, like we're all busy people, like, like of my life, you know, I do a lot of running and I get my hair cut on that yeah. day or whatever. <laughs> spending time outside, but like, oh my gosh, there's probably so many other things to fill that with. Like, you know, getting out of running clothes and like getting dressed up, going on a date, <laughs> like making, making breakfast beyond oatmeal. Like it's like, Oh, it's like when the French toast comes out in our Pancakes. household too, because we've got like an extra 30 <laughs> minutes in the morning or an hour in the morning to like make that happen. Um, and I also, I tell athletes similar to the sponge analogy too, like a rest day or a rest week, like we'll talk about here in a little bit. That's me having them both physically and mentally reset to be able to take on the next week, the next block of training. Like it's like, yes, I need you to take, like, take a step back this week because the next four weeks are going to be extra fun. And by fun, I mean, like we get to do work again, we get to do <laughs> intervals, we get to do long runs. Like, I think that's kind of like, you have to, it's like, I've got to exchange it. It's like, I, I cash in my rest day or I cash in my rest week. But I think it also brings up this kind of notion of like, what's your relationship with running? Like if you're sitting here saying, I'm really uncomfortable taking that day off, like, or that week off, like COVID made a lot of us like reevaluate our relationship with sport in general, because racing wasn't on the table. Um, but like it was pouring rain with gale force wind, wind warnings in the Bay area, Last weekend, um, Mount Tam and Kent feel like there was flooding. Um, Mount Tam received over almost 14 inches of rain in 24 hours. And having lived in like Bellingham, Washington, like you don't go out and gale force wind warnings because trees and branches are coming down. Like that is a dangerous thing to do. And what were all my friends doing in the Bay Area? They were all out running in the storm in the storm while I was like by the fireplace in our house, like drinking hot cocoa all day. So it's like, was that because it's you know cool to be out in the storm? Like I totally get that. But like, what's your relationship with running? Was it because you had a run schedule that day and you couldn't take it off? Like, why did, why did you get out the door that day? And the same, I think can go for smoke or it being negative 20 out. Like what's the purpose of that, of that day of that run? Like, does, is it really worth getting in four miles versus just like, I don't know, snuggling up on the couch with a good book for the day? Like what, what's the value proposition there? And I think our relationship with sport and exercise is really important to be kind of constantly checking in on and evaluating. Have you, I mean, totally. have you guys experienced that either yourselves or with athletes? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was when there's all the smoke, right. And because in my mind, if you're choosing to go run in that smoke and you won't take one day off for the smoke to clear, then you're doing more harm than good. Anyways, you're not going to get much out of that 30 to hour long run. Like but you're going to get, you're going to be ingesting smoke that entire time, which is not good for your cardiovascular system. And so, yeah, it's I mean, negative I, training, right? right exactly. Like and so, yeah, if the smoke persists for a week and, and you are training for something that's coming up, then, then maybe you find option B, right. You find a gym inside something with an air filter, whatever, but, but if it's like a one-off day and, and you can't, come to terms with taking one day off because there's like a natural disaster outside and it's going to implement negative things onto your health. Like you need to reevaluate your relationship a little bit. Yeah. 
I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Hillary, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, yeah. And I also think, so, I mean, obviously we're all coaches and so we kind of advise our athletes. So it's like all of these things that I'm saying that I struggle with, it's really interesting because it's the opposite advice that, you know, like I would give runners, right. So they, so I can, I have the ability to, you know, put my thinking cap on and like tell the runners that I'm coaching, like, okay, this is why you need rest. Like this is maybe a good strategy to implement rest days or rest weeks, like recovery weeks. But, you know, I have a coach myself because I need that outside perspective to like, to help me because, you know, I can get in my head and, um, you know, I need to be able to have these conversations. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the the thing that I want to add just because, you know, just because I'm not perfect at it, but um, I have the ability to maybe not take my own advice as much. I need the help of someone else to, to figure, help me figure that out. Yeah. You don't need a cheerleader, but you need someone to be like, Hey, Hilly, <laughs> sit down. <laughs> you know, you don't need to do that today. Yeah. I think, I mean, a lot of people fall into that category, right? You don't need someone to motivate you maybe to, to do the intervals, but you need someone to be like, you seem really tired. Like, <laughs> why don't, why don't you sleep in tomorrow and take a day off? So totally. I think that's, that's really important. <laughs> I think that it can be hard though. Sometimes when you don't have like thresholds set up, like, okay, what temperature do I not run outside at? Or what air quality do I not run outside at? And, and there's some guidelines out there on the internet. There's some pretty good articles, um, from a bunch of different places that we could probably find a link in the show notes, but if if maybe, maybe that's something that will help you be like, be held accountable, right. Of like, I do not do this after this time or like after this below this temperature or above this AQI, if you don't have a coach to hold you accountable or a coach is checking the weather where you live, like setting up that threshold so that you just know that there's like a yes, no parameter set to like hold you from making, from having to make that decision. But Um, So I think we're going to move up our little micro macro scale a little bit here from rest days to rest weeks. And I'm not talking about post-race week off. Like I'm a big fan of those. I write in my training log for my athletes, like today is taco day and tomorrow is ice cream day. And, you know, it just says rest, 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 rest. And it's got like snack themes for the day. Um, And I get pictures sent to me from athletes being like, I did my cookies today. You know, and I think it's great, (laughs) but um, I'm talking about periodization of training. And I'm wondering if you either yourself intentionally with the coaches that you work with or utilizing this with your athlete, what might that look like for, for you or for them? Uh, yeah, I mean, so exactly what you talked about, Corinne, I mean, I think it depends on the athlete, right. Um, and you know, maybe someone like you, Keely, me, um, we can build for four weeks and then take a recovery week or, you know, if it's, if it's a new athlete, um, you know, two weeks have a rest week, then two weeks, it can, you know, it can depend or like a recovery week. Right. So it really, it really depends on the athlete. Typically a lot of people, it's like, you know, there's a lot of books and, and papers out there that say, you know, three, three weeks kind of on, and then like a nice recovery week. And, um, yeah, I think that's just a normal part of, of building for a race. Cause it's exactly like you said, Corinne, I mean, you have to, you know, I think for me, it's, it's more mentally, like I need that mentally be like, okay, I don't have a workout this week. I can just run and enjoy it. Like I'm still training, but I don't have to like do as much work. And that's enough of a reset mentally for me to then get excited about kind of the work that I have for the coming weeks. Um, but obviously there's physiological adaptations there happening as well. And just giving yourself a little bit of a break. Um, so that's kind of how I approach it. Um, from a personal standpoint, but then also for advising, advising athletes. 
Yeah. Keely, have you taken much of a rest week or are your weeks pretty consistent when you're in like kind of a, a race prep phase? Yeah. When I'm, when I'm building for a race, I definitely do three to four weeks on and then a week down as well. Um, I've been playing around doing it kind of in line with my menstrual cycle and how I feel where the down week is typically kind of that like 10 to seven starting around that day away from when I start my period. So that phase before when I kind of feel a little bit crappy is when I try to make it my down week. And so obviously that doesn't always work out to be exactly three weeks or exactly four weeks. Right. So it's been a little bit of a, of an experiment this past year. And luckily my coach has been able to work with me on that and been like very uh, supportive of adjusting the training kind of last minute when I, when I feel like we should, we should try that. Um, and that's, that's been really helpful. And I, I think I used to, again, never do this as well. And I never understood why it was important to periodize the training and to actually like, you know, have three weeks of really tailored building like volume and then have a down week so that your body can adapt and a down week in this sense doesn't have to mean you're not doing anything all week, right? You're still going to be running. It's just going to be a significantly decreased running load. So your volume is going to go way down during this rest week. Like to Hillary's point, you're not going to have as many workouts um, and you're not going to have really high intensity work and you're not going to have as much of a long run. So it's just a week to kind of let you reset to then get really excited and be really energized for the next training block. And, and I feel like emphasizing that for your athletes being like, Hey, this week is for the next month. And like, if you crush this week and you crush it so hard, you're going to be crushing your next month of training because like this is part of the whole adaptation. You're going to be able to keep going. And, and I think trail runners and runners are so neurotic that you have to make them feel like it's really important or they're not going to do it. Yeah. I think it's like, you got to stress that, like that physiology there, um, being like, okay, this step, the step down in volume, you know, like maybe that means taking two. So like a standard with an athlete would be like, normally maybe they take one day off a week this on their rest week, they're going to take two days off a week. Maybe they're going to have a, you know, just a run with strides instead of a big workout, you know, they've got a medium long run, but they're not doing a long, long run, that kind of thing, because you have to have adequate stress plus adequate rest to make that adaptation happen. But yeah, you do, you do, you have to be like, hi, hello. This is like the time to step down. And then you get all the fun, all the goodies of being able to train hard the next month. And I think it's important to, I stress, I stress my athletes too, who might be a little bit more neurotic. I'll be like, Hey, like I'm okay. If this workout goes long or this long run goes long, any week, except for your rest week. If I have it marked as a recovery week or like a reset week, that's, there's no, there's no permission for the run to accidentally go long that week. That's like the one that it's like, Oh, I actually only want to run for 40 minutes today. Instead of an hour, I'm like extra thumbs up, like great, like great, like self-awareness because I think it's really important to recognize that like, yeah, it's okay to add stress to weeks that are already stressful potentially, as long as you're really respecting the rest days and the rest weeks so that you do have that reset, right? Because you're, you're creating functional overreach in the, in the times of those builds and then to not, you know, to not veer into non-functional overreach, which is like a slippery slope to just like your body falling apart, um, is to apply that rest when it's needed so that you can adapt to the training load and can train harder after that. But there's this myth, right? There's this myth that it's like, I'm going to, Oh my God, I took a week off. I'm going to be like, I'm so out of shape now. And there's no, I mean, they've done research on this. There's no validity in that. And you can actually take a surprising amount of time off without anything bad happening to you. I actually wrote a piece for I Run Far 
oh, maybe last year. It was an early fact and fi- or factor fiction piece that I did where I take like little myths that I hear in the sport and try to break them down and say, is this fact or is this fiction? And this one was if, if I take an off season or a week off, like, am I doomed? Like, will I be, will I not be fit? And the truth of the matter is, is that you can take significant time off with very minimal decreases in fitness. So basically like most of the decay that when they say decay, right. It's not your body's decomposing. That'd be kind of gross. It's decay. Like you're losing the adaptation and the adaptation would be fitness. Like you're losing some of that adaptation. And that really doesn't even start in a meaningful way until three to four weeks off. Okay. We're not talking of inactivity. About, yeah. That's inactivity. We're not talking about a rest week or a rest day. We're talking more than an off season for most athletes, even right. Like that is a yeah. huge period. So you're going to have slight decreases, but it's like, we're talking like, you know, a 6% decrease in VO2 max. Like, okay, you train for six weeks. You're going to be up above that in no time. So it's like, very, very minute things. And it's most likely linked at, you know, these things to decrease in like blood plasma volume. So like, just, you can't put as, put as much work out because you're losing some of that blood, blood volume. So I think it's like, people can chill out is like the base, the, the big, the big take home there that three to four weeks. And then if you take that much time off, so say, say you're injured, right? Say Haley, you broke your foot. <laughs> and you're going or and you're going and you're going crazy and I couldn't walk yeah. for like three months I was yeah. freaking out a yeah. bit <laughs> yeah or you you know like you broke your foot this spring and they yeah. were like hey you need to sit on the couch and that was you know a, both That's a physically and mentally uncomfortable thing but turns out three to four weeks of complete inactivity and I know I that you were on that skier I know that you were trying to do that rowing machine so it's not inactivity <laughs> but like that's what the literature says three to four weeks of complete inactivity is going to, that's when we start to see things start to peter off. And then from there, it only takes about four to eight weeks. That's kind of a wide range, a month to two months um, of steady training to bounce back to previous fitness levels. So yeah, it's going to feel a little bit awkward generally when you start, but that's almost always neuromuscular related. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, you feel awkward running, not necessarily because your cardiovascular system is like super out of whack. It's because you just, your body hasn't run in a little while and it's going to take a little while to not feel like a baby giraffe on ice. And that's okay. So the literature, this is like the only like heavy hitting science thing. I think we are going to bring in today, but it's like the literature says it's going to be okay. And you can take some time off. Yeah. And I think just the only thing I want to add there is that this is remember talking about complete rest time. So we're not exercising. We're not doing aerobic exercise. We're not running. Um, when we're looking at rest weeks or recovery weeks in between these like periodized training bouts that week, clearly you're not going to be losing anything because you're still running during that week. And so when we look at like a rest week, like something after like a big race, rest assured, you're also not going to really lose much from that rest week either, where you maybe don't run a single step for seven days. Um, you'll bounce back and feel great. Um, I don't know if you guys have had races where you've actually taken like a week or 10 days or two weeks off. And then you first run back. You're like, I am a rock star. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that, and that to me also should not be confused with an off season. Right. And I think that's, that's before I would kind of fall into this, um, where, you know, okay, if I'm taking a complete week off of just from anything from running after a race, or sometimes I would do that if I just needed a break in the season, like I was just feeling kind of strung out and I would just take 
a week and I was like, you know what, I'm, what I'm going to do today is yoga and I'm just going to stretch. And I just did that for a whole week. And then I came back and I was like, oh, this is great. I feel like a rock star. Maybe I should do this more. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's different, as you mentioned from an right, off season and Keely, right. I know you've fallen into that in the past too, where the only rest you've taken is these posts, maybe up to a week. Like for me, it was right. like, once I hit that hundred mile mark for a race, like that was like my, my week, my 10 days of, of no running, um, really kicked in. Um, there's no perfect metric there. I feel like there was someone, maybe it was Ann Trayson. Um, and some of her her training was legit, like maybe crazy and impossible to repeat. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but I think she might've said something like three days off. And then for like every 10 miles of race distance after 50 K that was like another day. I have heard that before. Yeah. And so it came from Ann somewhere. Trayson is a <laughs> we'll maybe. look it up and we'll link to it. Someone will, find someone will tell us if we're wrong. Someone <laughs> will know the ultra ultra running history buffs will let us totally. know. But yeah, I mean, a week off feels like insurmountable sometimes. Right. So when you're, when you're maybe not in the sport for the right reasons right away, or you have a pretty messed up relationship with rest, like for me, a week off after a race was like something I never did after UTCT. So I did Cape town in 2018, 102 K or something. I ran two days later. That is two days after a race that required me to travel on a plane for 20 hours. Like that is not okay, (laughs) but it was because I had a poor race. And so, you know, I wasn't in the right mindset to be okay. Taking time off, which is not the right thing to think about because I think after a race, if you do a hundred K or a hundred mile or 50 mile or whatever, you need to let your body recover. You have a ton of muscle damage from that race that really needs to recover. So that week after needs to be off just so you can recover from that race. That doesn't necessarily equal an off season is, yeah, is what I'm thinking. Your body's repairing during that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like your body is like, yes, you're not running. You're not moving your body as you normally would in a t- traditional training week, but you're still your body, as, as we've mentioned with Hillary's injury in the past, right? Like Hillary, like your body was working so hard after you fell off that mountainside to repair itself, that you were in a state essentially of like, you know, of a, of a, amenorrhea because your body's like, we don't have energy to -hmm. deal with this other thing right now. That's kind of what racing does to you as well. Like your body is actively working to repair your damaged tissues. That includes your muscle, but it also includes like your gut right? Like running for a long time, like let's take Western States. It's really hot. You get some splanchnic hypoperfusion. That's when all your blood is not going to the tissues of your stomach and it's going to your skin, try to keep you cool. So you don't die. Um, because ultras are really a really good idea and we should all keep running them. Um, your, your gut, you know, like things are damaged by doing these things. Right. And we've, we've covered articles on this and we don't want to like, we're not fear mongering here, but Like, this is why these things are important. That's why after these big events, after these big weeks of training, like rest is so important because your body needs that time to make adaptations or to to even just fix itself because you've put it through the ringer. And I mean, not to mention that too, Keely mentioned, you know, traveling. So, you know, that also has a huge amount, even if traveling from the West coast to the East coast, that's significant, like a time change. And so, you know, your, your rhythms can be off, your home hormones can be off. And then if you add international traveling onto that, and then, uh, you know, in these ultra distance races running through the night, you know, that can also put another stress that can take, you know, I mean, it depends on the person, but for, you know, just to recover from jet lag without racing, it can take up to a week. So, yeah. Or you return to altitude. So right. Keely and I are, are low level or low, low landers in the group, but like returning to altitude after a race, because say you live in Boulder or Albuquerque or wherever, and 
your body, like it, it, it takes longer to recover in those locations, right? Because you're not in this oxygen rich, like happy go lucky, low sea level environment. And so that's actually something to consider. Like I've thought about that. My partner, I get to say husband now, my husband, um, is applying to residencies. And we were talking about my race season next year and where we might get placed for residency. And it's like, oh yeah, if I do this or I do that, like, would it make sense to come home? Oh, I might not be able to recover in time. Like if we're living in this location at X altitude, like would I go home or would I stay in, in Europe or somewhere else? Like, yeah, like these things are important to kind of like, just as important as figuring out your race season is, it's also important to figure out when, when's your rest season. And maybe that's kind of teeing up to the macro of this whole thing. So you need to recover after races. Um, but there's this other fun thing and Hilly, you're soon going to have one. Keely, you're actively participating in one. I've had a year of arrests and off season. So we're just, you know, we'll count me in this bunch right now, but why do you all think that taking an off season is so important and how can we utilize it? Right? Like what, what, what are the benefits of taking one? Anyone? I mean, jump in. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, first and foremost, mentally, mentally, I need it. I, I dabbled in trying to get into kind of like schemo when I was like in the winter time, um, you know, during my off season, it's like, okay, I'm not going to run as much. So I'm going to do, do skiing and do another maybe, intense sport. Right. And I was thinking like, oh, but maybe, and maybe, maybe I'll just race it. Maybe I'll do this. And then I was just like, no, 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 I cannot do that. I need the mental energy. Like how I think about it now is I'm guarding the psych. My off season is this time where I'm guarding the psych for like, next season when I actually get to race. And actually I say this to me, to myself during my taper week, I'm like, you're guarding the psych hill. You get to unleash it on race day. So I hope all of you, if you, if Corinne, you like it, you can, you oh, can, I love it. It. Love can, both use it. can we make t-shirts that say that guard the psych? Yes, please. <laughs> but like, that's, that's literally my motto that I say to myself Dylan, in the off season. Dylan can have the stoke. We'll have the site. Yes. Okay. And, but I think for, for, so first and foremost, for me, off season is mentally, I need that reset. And it wasn't until I really understood what it meant to be not able to move my body and to actually be forced to rest that I understood the physiological benefits to that. And so being able to do less and then see how I could actually like build and reach a higher peak, you know, fitness wise from one season to the next, when I took a true off season and actually had some downtime that I actually kind of bought into the science that I love so much. Cause I was like, ah, yeah. Okay, cool. People can talk about this, but I don't know if I believe it, you know, like it's like, I mean, obviously I believe it, but it's, it's hard to practice if, you know, it can, it had become almost like an unhealthy thing, uh, for me before I, um, you know, was forced to, to, to take an off season. So, yeah, like this is, this is elected rest, right? This isn't forced rest. I think it's really important. And part of that, like part of that elective rest, right. Is it does do things like prevent injury, Right. Right. As opposed to like, I think there are probably a lot of athletes out there who have avoided being overtrained because they got hurt before they're, before they like metabolically broke down. Right. That stress fracture, that stress reaction, whatever it is, bought them four weeks of recovery Mm -hmm. and kept them from going down a slippery slope. Not to say that I, and I've, I've wished not to say I've wished an injury on someone that sounds really bad, but I've been like, Oh man, if this person could break their foot, Hillary, don't worry. It wasn't you. I didn't. (laughs) you. But I was like, that might, that might protect them from like 
implosion because what they really need is four weeks of rest. So, um, I mean, Corinne, you've told this to me before, I think even like with, you know, when we were talking about this during my, during some of my injuries, um, I, you, you mentioned this to me, so we're close enough. You could, you could tell me that, that, you know, it's like, Hillary, this is a good thing. Cause I think it, it helped save you from kind of this overtraining. Cause I think before, I mean, mine was a bit of a traumatic injury at first and then, you know, but that really, I think I was in this kind of peak to overtraining. And if, you know, I would have gone unchecked, um, it it could have been something different, right? Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think we all kind of turn into this, like, uh, this little like monster version of ourselves when we're, when we're pushing on for no reason, right? Like we all like to suffer, but there's a point in our running like season where that, that point to suffer, like is very voluntary for no reason. So we like trudge on through this, like this turmoil for no reason to train for something that is not there yet. And With so no I always, light at the end of the time, right? Like right? there's no, there's no reason to keep pushing. And I always find myself around this time of year feeling this way. And it's led to injury before it's led to just like burnout, burnout, exactly. Like really negative mindsets. And, and it's because your body like needs a rest and, and I, you don't enjoy running anymore. Like I get to a point where I'm just trudging on hating what I'm doing when in all reality, all I need is just a couple of weeks completely un- removed from running so that I can like re evaluate my relationship with running kind of look back on what I was feeling, because obviously in the moment you don't realize you're going crazy. You don't realize you're the little monster in the room. And then maybe a week or two into your recovery, you're like, Oh, I was crazy because I was kind of pushing a little bit too far. And I needed this reset. And a couple of weeks away from that, your body's like able to get rid of that stress response, kind of calm down a little bit and reevaluate everything and really like actually rest and, and it's kind of lovely. And I feel like, yeah, it's, it's super important to just take an off season. I had to walk an athlete through this recently who like saying they bombed with their a race is not very nice. They had a really good block of training. Like they went into this a race, like with very reasonable, very stout goals. Like no, there's no reason to have a bad day potentially, but it's ultra running. So bad days happen. And that's totally. just like, the way it goes. So walked away from a hard race, like made it to mile 80, um, and had to like, basically had to pull the plug. And so that's a lot of miles on the body too, right? There's a lot that's to not to, you know, like, it's not did they run a hundred miles. No, but they ran 80 miles and that's still a long way. And like, basically I think the same. there was a while where they were looking for <laughs> redemption mentally and like trying to figure out like, okay, can I get what race, like where, what am I going to race? Like, I need one more thing to like cleanse my palate before 2022. Like, how can I make that happen? And I was like, okay, we're gonna take some time off. We're gonna like let the body, like the body seems like it needs a reset. The 80 miles were pretty hard on it. Let's like see how the body feels in a little bit. If we can just, you know, give it, give it that time and and see mentally, like, do you want to do this thing or do you need to do this thing? Mm -hmm. And it came down to feeling like they needed to do it instead of wanting to do it. And so we've elected to not do that race um, in December before the, before the 2022, you know, calendar starts. Um, Because the truth of the matter is, is that like, we have the mental bandwidth to be forgiving of ourselves. And even though ending the season on like a, a kind of like an, like an unhappy DNF um, is a hard way to wait, like to wait up the next year, but it does put people in this really weird spot of, do I take an off season? Do I not take an off season? What do I actually need? What do I actually want? Um, and you end up in that same boat, you're trudging on for no reason. And you're super unmotivated. You're sitting, if you find yourself sitting and at, in your car at the trailhead for like 
15, 20, maybe 30 minutes procrastinating the start of your run. That's not a great sign. I would say, especially if that's, if that's every day to your run, right? Yeah. Yeah, Once a one-off, that's totally fine. That happens to me like all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not every day, but not infrequently, but (laughs) if it's an everyday thing, that is an issue, right? Mm -hmm. If you dread every single run, that is an issue. And so maybe what you need is some time off to reevaluate like what you want and what maybe what the reset's going to be and what next year is going to be. So what, what other things do people get out of or could they get out of utilizing an off season for? Oh man, I think lifting is something that I've been prioritizing because I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I can never find quite enough time during the season to get like proper lifting in. And so for a lot of my off season, a lot of my goals have just been to build up in my lifting program and to actually like focus on the, the weaknesses that I have and use the extra time that I would use for running, um, to like work on those things, because obviously it's hard to fit in everything. Um, and, and the one thing I do want to stress here though, is this is kind of outside of those two weeks off. Um, I wouldn't say that I was lifting hard during those two weeks either. So it was like, taking proper time off. And then I feel like the off season is a good time to, as you're building back up mileage, running very low mileage, low volume to really work on like building that strength. Yeah. And then that can transition, I think, into this time frame where you're really far away from your A race, but you're kind of back in the shit, like the training to train mindset where it's like, okay, now, so you're going to keep lifting, but you're going to do intervals that are really non-specific to your race, right? Like very short VO2 max intervals and they're going to pair really well with that heavy strength training that you're doing. That's not ultra specific in any way. Right. And then it's going to be happy go lucky time and you're going to build into normal ultra training and things are going to be good, but it's kind of that you get that flexible training into like that training to train time frame, And then from there it builds into like, you know, you gotta, it's kind of like you're laying that foundation of, of like, of your house. I know Hilly, you've talked about like, just like it's brick by brick. Like I'm, I've got to place these bricks down one at a time to build a really strong foundation. So I'm wondering if there's anything else. I like the idea of working on weaknesses and I'm wondering if how else people could utilize that time. Like what other weaknesses might you have targeted in your own training or with athletes that you work with during this kind of transition time, you know, maybe even it's kind of, you're coming out of off season into like far away from race season. Hilly's muted, but she's going to talk (laughs) for me. Something that I work with, like, um, with, with different people, if they're coming out of an injury period, um, or kind of in this like training to train, it's a great opportunity to pick up a new sport. I mean, I used, uh, you know, cross training. Um, I think it's another way to kind of work on weaknesses. Like I think about it becoming a more well-rounded athlete in general. I think cycling has helped me immensely, um, in, in running and just building a cardiovascular base. So then when your body's strong enough, like when you're coming back from injury or your body just needs a time to kind of heal, I'm going to use that word from, cause running is, is pretty, uh, um, there's a lot of abuse that happens, <laughs> you know, um, to the, just, to your frame when you're running. And so kind of using that as a break, but you're still also training. Um, obviously I really leaned into cycling and all three of us do too, but that's not the only thing. I mean, it can be, I mean, we all live in places where there's snow, so we can, you know, lean into, into those other sports too. Um, I know Corinne, you, um, you rock climb and I have a lot of people who kind of dabble in running and rock climb. Cause it's a really cool way to, to go outside and you're building all of these other different muscles. I love it in rock climbers, how it's like, 
rock climbers have really strong, um, glutes and, and sometimes runners that's where they're the weakest when like they're very quad heavy. Right. Um, so it can be a really nice way to, to get into another sport and then build muscles that actually can complement you in the running side. Yeah. I'm super pro cross training just in general. I mean, coming from a ski background, like skiing is cross training. You just like, you just get to do all the sports all the time. It's great. And I've traditionally until the last five or six, really my running career, I have lived in places that were not very, uh, there wasn't really winter. Like I lived in Bellingham, Washington, and now in San Francisco. Um, but before that being a winter athlete, I liked having the season, like the seasonality forced on me where it was like, no, 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 you're not running right now. Like now it is ski season. And then like, you're going to be excited about running season. I've had to force that on myself. I've had to force those breaks without the seasonality of, uh, of winter doing that for me. And I would just, the one, the one thing I would caution with cross training is that I think that I've seen athletes like post race because they, because they do ski or because they do bike that they, you can jump, you can turn to that sport really quickly, you know, instead of taking that week off from exercise, you're on the bike, you know, two days after your hundred. And it's like, okay, like I understand being out with your friends and maybe it's a social thing, but it's like at the same time, like you went through this metabolically very taxing thing too. Yes. These sports that are non-weight bearing or much lower impact are very good for runners because we, our sport is so, um, we get those ground forces, right. They're good for our bone density, but they can be bad for, you know, we, we can break a lot more because of that. And so I, my one caution is that being cognizant of, if you also need a metabolic rest, that you are careful with how you utilize cross training during those moments, because getting on the bike is not rest. It isn't, it's low ground force, but it's not metabolic rest. So you've got to find that balance there. And I think it's, that's, that is a nuance that I, that took me a long time to figure out, um, and will continue to take a long time to, you know, continue to noodle with it. But I think that that is something to be cognizant of, you know, when you're working through, like, let's say, you know, if you're a red S athlete, or if you have a, a traumatic injury versus a stress injury versus a red, you know, a red S or, um, caloric related injury, or just you need rest, rest from running, be it mental or physical break at the end of the year, just being cognizant of that is my one, my one caution. Yeah. I mean, stress is stress is stress, right? That's what we love to kind of like emphasize is like your body doesn't know that much difference. So if you go from this really, really long event, that's really metabolically taxing and you have a ton of stress from that, like say you run a hundred miles or whatever, then you go and, and ride for three hours on the bike and you put yourself back in that energy deficient, metabolically taxing state very closely after that race that's going to have longer downstream effects for you. And that's going to delay your recovery as well. So yeah, definitely like play with caution when you are using cross training after those big events and, and use it like lightly, like don't go hammer for hours on end. Just use it as like a way to flush out the legs. Uh, your fitness is going to be there in a couple of weeks. It's not going anywhere. So maybe like use that extra hour. You would be on the bike and, and like bake some muffins or <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah. Lean, lean into some <laughs> other things. I need to continue to lean into yoga or something. Cause I think, or PT or being a, a better mm, athlete. That's a really good point. I feel like another thing you could kind of prioritize in your off season is to work with a PT. So I have a lovely PT here in Portland who knows how poor my ankles are and my kind of like hip ankle like interaction. And so in the off season, I do like a lot of PT every day and I work with a provider to have a plan to how to like progress over time so that 
when you do start running a ton again, that your body's able to handle it. And you're not that awkward giraffe running around because you've taken the time to, uh, like really target all of your weaknesses in that off season and, and come back like very full. And I think what's really, what's really important in the off season is to, to feed these other parts of you. That's not just for running. Right. I mean, I think we have a lot of like the mental energy. It's like, okay, like how can I work on my weaknesses? How can I benefit my running? What about just doing something for fun? Like, and that's definitely how like the other, other sports kind of feed my soul in that way. But also, I mean, you know, doing things like taking extra rest days and, you know, and making sure that your cup is full. And that for me, it's like guarding that psych means that, I'm doing other things that aren't feeding that athlete side of me. So it's, you know, leaning into teaching, to, to reading, to cooking. I mean, you know, embracing the early bedtimes for the darker hours, <laughs> uh, the darker days and months that we're about to, you know, go into. Um, yeah. So for me, it's also just like figuring out those things that make you a whole person outside of just an athlete. That's really well said. Yeah. And then I think, kind of leaning into that metabolic thing. We, we got one, we got an email or we got an Instagram message. I don't know if you guys actually got to see it. It was about, it was an athlete who recently got COVID. Um, so kind of talking about rest and metabolic injury. Cause you know, her concern was, so she got, she got COVID recently and, um, was very mild and took some time off, but then kind of like rushed, forced her way back into running and actually like, I don't think she's been diagnosed with myocarditis, but essentially was like having like was having issues breathing and was having like this, these card, this cardiac issue in response to, in response to COVID. Um, and so just being like, there are times where our bodies need rest and it's not an apparent thing. So that might be a metabolic injury, like a viral infection, like COVID or like being overtrained. And it's really important. It's, it's so much easier to be, not to say it's easy to be in a boot, boots are not fun, but it forces you to rest versus being in a state where your body's pretty functional. And so I think if we can change our relationship with running, it makes being put in that situation, being a person with COVID or a person who got a really bad viral infection or the flu or whatever, or are dealing with overtraining mm -hmm. um, to be able to take, or the weather's bad, like it's smoky. I think if we can reframe, just kind of like rounding back out to that idea of like reframing your relationship with how you move your body and what exercise means to you, in all that context makes taking the both forced and unforced rest so much easier. Completely just agree. Per percolating in there. Oh yeah. Good one. Totally. Cause I mean, this sport can just eat you alive, right? Like there's races, as we've said multiple times all year round. Um, and so, yeah, our health is definitely the most important thing. We don't have to race all the time. Yeah. Is there anything else that you guys want to add to, to, um, the off season topic discussion, or we can kind of dive into society slam and wrapping this, this episode up. Let's slam it. <laughs> yeah. What do you got? What do people got? Um, I have one, this, I think is going to be kind of a, a good discussion. And so it might end up warranting another episode, but we'll see. I feel like that's kind of the, the theme of all of these society slams is people send us the best topics and the, the most thought provoking questions. So mm -hmm. this one, I'm not going to name who has said it. Um, this was just something that I received that made me think really hard. Um, and I've been taking notes on my thoughts around this topic for a really long time. So I'd love to hear your guys' opinions around it. But one of the, one of my followers asked me um, if one of the issues we could talk about would be the effect of how so many successful athletes come out with eating disorders and issues with body image, 
However, they're very successful and they feel that it's uh, important to talk about because it is a double-edged sword because it makes it seem like engaging in these unhealthy behaviors is equal to success, right? And so she's wondering like, do we think we can start talking about them earlier to make sure like to highlight that this is not a good tool for success because when people come out with eating disorders after they've, you know, won X race or done something, it's, it's it kind of like is a hard thing for people that are struggling with this themselves to swallow that it's not something they should do. Yeah. You have to like see enough negative, right? Like, Oh, you're in the hospital. Oh, you're, you like, you're falling apart completely. And I think part of that goes back though, too, to like, you know, generally it takes people so long to open up about these things because there's so much stigma and shame around, around disorder like that. And so it's like, yes, it'd be wonderful if we all recognize we had an issue immediately and we, you know, were public about it or squashed it really quickly, but it's, it's hard, right. You're, you're right there. There are athletes who are going to talk about something that they dealt with 10 years ago. And it's like, okay, well, you were so successful during that time or after that time, like, what was it because you recovered from it was because you had success because of changes during that time. So I think that like, that is a very interesting conundrum because there's this, the mentality of being a person struggling with that too, of like Mm -hmm. the stigma and shame around actually talking about it. That's tough. Yeah. And you guys follow Lucy, but she had a beautifully written post uh, a little bit ago talking about her, like her time with this, this problem. Mm -hmm. And she really emphasizes that even when she got third at Western States, like she kind of talks to her training leading up to that. And it's like the most turmoil she's ever experienced in her life, like inner turmoil, like feelings of doubt, feelings of like insufficiency. And, and I think that's what needs to be highlighted is that, yeah, we can all look back or these people who are recovering, we, we can say that we're recovered and we had these eating disorders when we were successful, but I think really talking about how it impacts the day to day and how, yeah, they might've won this race, but actually their day-to-day is so miserable and they're going through all of these ups and downs. And, and it's not something that you should strive for. I, I think that might be a way to kind of, to kind of address that issue is to just have more open conversation of what's going on in the, in the mind. And being the face of that is not easy though. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Jesse Diggins has taken that on in the ski world. Um, and, and she's partnered with the Emily program and they're doing really great work. The Emily program being a, a residential and outpatient um, clinic similar to Opal, Opal being one of the Seattle-based ones. Um, Emily programs, uh, I, I know it's in the Midwest. I don't know if it's based outside of the Midwest or not, but is a good um, residential and outpatient clinic for um, people struggling with disordered eating. Um, and I don't know, like, is Lucy, like Lucy has shared bits and pieces of that, but uh, like being the face of that's not, not easy. And it's no. like, yes, she's, you know, said that no red flags were raised around her during that time. And it's like, you know, I think some of us in the community saw red flags during that time, but didn't feel mm-hmm. like it was our place to right. say, Hey girl, like, are you okay? Yeah. Right. Right. Like that's also really complicated, mm-hmm. right. To be a person where it's like, I'm worried about this individual. I don't know that they're healthy right now. Is it my place to say anything? Like right. mm-hmm. that was that I struggled actively during that time for, for Lucy specifically. And I feel comfortable saying that, like, I, I feel like I can own that publicly. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I want her to be happy and healthy and be, be Lucy. Um, but I, you know, like that, that's also part of that conversation. Right. And I think, I mean, another person in, in our sport that does a really good job with this is Amelia Boone, but she, I mean, she's been 
crazy honest. And I love that so much, um, how honest she's been about her whole process, the ups and downs and that recovery isn't just a bandaid, right? She's experienced an injury, um, you know, since she, she's, you know, recovered from her eating And been disorder. frustrated by it, right? right she's right. been frustrated by that injury saying like, I'm doing everything right now. And it's like, well, your body knows that you've had this thing for decades. Um, I also really like that Amelia has been really public about like owning being in a really small, like, she's like, I'm, I am talking about this stuff, but I also need to be forward in public that I recognize that I am in a small body in comparison to so many other people. Um, and trying not to, so I think she's been really good in this, like post university of Oregon, like stuff coming out about sharing, continuing to share that narrative. She did an Instagram live last week that I think was pretty well received kind of on that as well. Just talking about like, you know, we're not like your, your experience is not invalid, but um, we've also talked about how, you know, like finding out uh, that Amelia struggled with this and looking at those, you know, those cover shots of her and being like, you know, f- and, and having feelings associated with them. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation and we're going to need athletes to take the lead on it to be, to provide guidance and provide mentorship, but it's hard to be the face of something that you're not proud of. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I would never wish that on Lucy or anybody that we ever talked to in this pop podcast. I just think there's some, it's, it's brave to talk about, about things. It. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That are, that are kind of new for the space. Yeah. And I think it's important akin to me talking about overtraining and continue to talk about it. I think that, you know, like I don't, I don't want that for anyone. And I think that people like Amelia and Lucy don't want anyone else to have to go through that experience. And so I think that in, in sharing their experience in that way, like maybe you catch someone before it's too late for them. Totally. Or maybe you steer someone away from that before they fall into this pit and you can say, yes, I did this thing. Yes, I was successful or I am successful, but at a cost that's too high at a cost that's too steep. And to try to drive home that message, um, so that someone doesn't see it and say, well, I need to obviously be in that position. Right. Right. And it just goes back to all of this stuff too. I mean, I don't really have a society slam, but just kind of going off of that, you know, being the face of something. I mean, I think many times maybe I'm, you know, the face of, um, recovery in many ways. And that can be burdensome because it's like, I'm not an expert, but then, you know, it's the lens that some people, some people can see me through. Right. But then there's other ways to kind of be a leader in that and, you know, help others like, reassuring them maybe through this, this episode of like, you don't need to be broken to take an off season. And yeah. there's, there's other Ooh. ways to do this. I Dropping like the one-liners today, Hill. Yeah. Keely's got some <laughs> garden, the psych and don't be broken it. to take an off season. Broken to take it off season. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hillary, Hillary just dropped her mic. She's out. She, <laughs> she want one. She won it. Okay. I have a society slam. It's the one that I emailed to you all. Um, and it's something that we're just going to touch on briefly, but I think it's going to like many things inspire an upcoming episode. We had a runner reach out to us. Um, and my favorite part of this was she said, so it was a woman, she was out, um, she was out on a hike. Um, she wasn't, you know, she was clothed appropriately. Not that that matters. You can wear what you want. Um, and some guy on the trail made like a really like insanely like disrespectful remark to her. And she was like flustered and just like, she's like, I wish I'd been able to like, you know, say something more like, you know, assertive back to them, but like, didn't want this confrontation to happen out on the trail. Um, and she, and my favorite part was that she was like, you know, I'm like, I'm really tall and I kind of give off like a don't mess with me vibe. So I normally don't 
have these interactions and I'm sure you all have had them. Like what, what do we do about them? What can we do about them? And this is like dealing with other people out on the trail who are, you know, once again, saying something about your body or cat calling you or, and which, you know, I don't know, makes me feel unsafe sometimes out on the trail or out on the road running. And so I think we're going to have an episode focused around this about, um, can kind of continue this conversation about women's bodies and ownership over women's bodies being misplaced and taken away from us, it seems sometimes. So I'm really um, thankful that this person reached out to us um, with that because hopefully it's a conversation that you all can um, help grow with us. And, and if you've experienced that, like we would love to hear from you too about your personal experiences, um, interactions with other people out on the trail or out on the road. Um, Cause they're, you know, generally, oftentimes my interactions are really positive, but sometimes they're not. I know Keely, you got cat called recently on a run and it was kind of alarming. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think other people's stories are really eye-opening for, at least for me, because I live in Portland where running is like what people do. It's the most popular thing here. Right. And so I never get cat called here. And yeah, I was driving to Lake Sonoma and was in Reading and I got cat called twice on one run and the run was only four miles long. And I was like, wait, okay. I, I remember now in different parts of the world, it is not as commonplace for females to run in short shorts and a tank top or a sports bra or whatever, you know? And so, yeah, it's, definitely interesting, but I, I forget sometimes because I'm in a place that running is, is commonplace. So. Yeah. I think it'll be, I think it'll be a good place to be. Hillary, do you have one for us this week? Or are you no, I mean, drop, drop on your one-liners? <laughs> I think I'll do with that. <laughs> no, but uh, just, you know, just related to that, we all have our own experiences and even in, you know, a place like Boulder where I live just the other day, I was doing some intervals on um, Sunita's mountain, this really popular mountain. And, you know, I was in the middle of one of my intervals was doing like Adam is trying to kill me, like do these like this third repeat up this mountain. And I passed this guy and he was like moving pretty well, but I was, you know, moving faster. Hillary is one of the best at going uphill in the world. So she's allowed to pass you out on the trail. <laughs> but of course this guy didn't know it. He just saw this girl in a sports bra, you know, moving uphill. And he, he said, ah, oh, like I just, as I was starting to feel good about myself. And I'm just like, and, and, and I'm one of those people that, you know, normally these reactions just, and like, this is, and it wasn't because, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem like it was because it was a guy passing him because there were, there was other guys on the trail and he didn't make a comment to them. And then it was because I was a woman passing him on this and, mm -hmm. you know, and so to make matters, you know, I was just like, this is my third interval. Like, you come on, like, let's go. I mean, that's what I default to as well. I get, I get this most honestly, like, gra like gravel riding in the headlands. Oh. Cause I like, okay, I'm on a cyclocross bike. I don't have enough gears because my bike is not geared for this. Um, and so I'm just like, you know, cranking up hills. Mashing. <laughs> because I like, Adam's like, you know, you can go easier. I'm like, I can't go easier. I'm in my easiest gear trying to not fall over. Like mm -hmm. this is as easy as I can go. But guys will be like, you know, we'll say something when I pass them. And I'm like, well, if I had more gears, I would go easier. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like just like this weird apology, but not apology. So yeah. Everyone experiences that kind of nonsense out on the trail, Fe female, male, or otherwise alike. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's not just a, an issue for women, for women run out running on the trail. It's, de it's definitely not just an issue for women running out on the trail, but you know, we, we, we are all, we're three women who have experienced it. So we're going to, I think. Wait, Corinne, I've got, yeah. I've got a little one-liner though, that you could use next time this happens. Just like, okay. like kiss your quad. Be like, if you had these quads, you could go as fast as me. Yeah. <laughs> 
be like, huh, well, um, <laughs> yeah, normally, normally I run just like, be like, I don't know what you I'm say, doing. I choose to ride this shitty bike and it makes me work harder than you. And I'm still faster. <laughs> yeah. So sorry. Um, yeah, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll get there, but we'd love to hear from you all. You've been sending us amazing DMS and emails, um, about your experiences being, being runners, right. Being runners in different bodies, being runners of different races, um, of different genders. Um, it's been really cool to hear from all, all of you. And we hope that you continue to send us your ideas and questions for things that we can tackle in the future or here in a society slam at the end of our episodes. But we want to thank you for joining us yet again. Episode eight, we're almost at the double digits. You guys, mm. will we make it? Will, will we make it? Will it blend? I think so. Um, I'm going to sign. We're going to sign off. I'm going to sign off. I'm going to give. No, we got to give a shout out to Hillary first. Good luck at her race. Yeah. Go crush it. Thanks, guys. Gals, girls. Sorry. (laughs) Whatever. That's okay. (laughs) We'll take it all. Um, We're so, so thrilled to see you crush your final race of the year. And we're so excited that the next time we speak to you, we'll get to be debriefing it. Oh, yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. Woohoo. And Thanks everyone. Note, we'll see Bye. you. See you next time.